Greetings and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com, the podcast program in which we study Parashat Shavua over the course of six podcasts during the week in which we read that parasha. My name is Yitzchak Et Shalom and I'm delighted to be studying the second half of Sefer Shmot with you. And this week we are reading Parashat Tirumah. A couple of prefatory notes about Truma, and then we're going to go out of our normal circle and style uh, before actually getting into the text. Uh, but first, uh, at the very end of Parshat Mishpatim, Moshe ascended the mountain, and after six days was called by Hashem, was summoned by Hashem, to enter the cloud, which from the ground looked like an all-consuming fire, but from Moshe's perspective, seemed to be presented as a cloud. He walked into the cloud, and remember, he had been summoned up to get HaTorah VaHamitzvah, to get the commands. He'd been given many commands in the cloud at the foot of the mountain, which make up the bulk of Pashat Mishpatim, and he then came out and transmitted them to the people both orally and then wrote them down. Uh, and now he's coming in to get other commands, and as we will find, all of the commands that he's given inside the cloud up on top are, cloud, are commands relating to the construction of the Mishkan and its appurtenances, uh, which, are, which is going to take uh, the focus of Parshat Shumah, all of Parshat Tetzaveh, and the first section of Parshat Kitisa until Moshe comes down and leaves the cloud. Um, so these are those commands relating to to the construction of the Mishkan, and that'll be our focus here, and the division of Parshat Truma, as we had in Parshat Mishpatim, is a rather easy one to, to make, because it's sectioned off. Mishpatim, we had to ourselves determine which sections and how to break it. Truma, there's a certain pre-division, uh, as you can see, we're starting from the inside out, meaning our first commands will be a general command, and commands relating to the most sanctified inner sanctum of the Mishkan, what we refer to as the Kodesh Kodashim. We'll then move out to the Kodesh. We'll then move to the structure of the Mishkan, special vessels relating to the Mishkan, and then the courtyard to the Mishkan. And that will take all six podcasts this week. One thing I'd like to look at uh, in in uh, prefacing our study of Parshat Truma is a vital paragraph, and we've posted it here on the on the site, as well, so you can follow it. And that is Ramban's introduction to Parashat Truma. It's a fabulous piece and something that everybody should be familiar with, and we'll study it together. Uh, one note is something that we referred to uh, in our opening podcast in Parashat Yitro was the issue of Yesh Muktam Umuchar Batorah or Ein Muktam Umuchar Batorah. Something that's discussed in the Midrash Halacha, it's discussed in the Gemara and Masach Psachim, and referenced in several other places in the Gemara. And the question is whether or not the Torah follows a chronologically true sequence or not. Uh, there are certain places where it's obvious that it follows a chronologically true sequence. When you have somebody born and then die, well, they had to be born before they died. And when the Torah uses words like, and it was after these matters, clearly ab, uh, event B took place after event A. Uh, when things are clearly cause and effect related. So the effect happened after the cause. <clears throat> then there are certain places in the Torah where you, you could just cannot defend the position of chronological 
sequencing because, for instance, in the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar, the date given is the beginning of the second month of the second year, and in Paraktet, it's the beginning of the first month of the second year. And there, we all have to agree that the, those things are presented not in the accurate order. However, what happens when we have separate segments that are presented and there is no date given, there's no textual clue as to sequencing, do we say, well, they must have been presented in order or not? And that was a big part of the discussion around Yitro. That discussion really reaches its <clears throat> uh, climactic uh, dispute right around the issue of Parshat Truma, because Parshat Truma introduces, as I said, the construction of the Mishkan. And in much of Midrashic and Rabbinic thinking, the Mishkan is an antidote to the Chet Egel, the sin relating to the golden calf. All of the gold that's used in the Mishkan seems to be a way of purifying the gold that was used for the Egel, um, and many other associations that are made between the sin of the Egel and the, uh, the Tikkun, as it were, the repair, accomplished by the Mishkan. And that fits the approach that in Muqtam Mukhar Torah, that the Torah is not in chronological sequence, because after all, we're only told about the Egel in chapter 32, and here we are in chapter 25. However, Ramban, who is the champion of the position that Yesh Muqtam Mukhar Torah, and the Torah, unless indicating explicitly otherwise, follows chronological sequence, uh, sees the Mishkan as something very different than a response to the Egel. So we'll take a look together at Ramban's introduction to this parasha. He says as follows, When Hashem spoke to Yisrael face to face, and He gave them the ten utterances, and then he commanded through Moshe some of the mitzvot, which are like super categories to the mitzvot of the Torah. And parenthetically, that is our tradition, and the sugya, and the fourth parak of Yivamot details it, that that's how we train gerim. We give them general categories and a few examples of the mitzvot when they're about to convert. And Yisrael accepted that they would do everything that Hashem commanded them through Moshe. And he made a covenant about that, and that's what we read at the end of Mishpatim. So from this point on, they are his nation, he is their God. As we read in Parshat Yitro, if you listen to my voice, then you will be a treasure to me from among the nations. And indeed, that's what they did. And so by accepting it, they became his nation. So since they are holy, it's appropriate that they should have a holy place where his presence can rest, among them. Therefore, the first command that he gave here, meaning, he first gave us Then in Mishpatim, it's like super categories for a lot of things. And we spoke about that in the podcast in Mishpatim, about how there are brief sketches and hints to particular mitzvot, like Shemitah, that later on in other parts of the Torah are given much fuller treatment. Afterwards, we have that relationship. So the next thing to do is to create a place where he rests among us. 
לכן צביעת חלל, דבר משכן, שיהיה לו בית בתוכם מקודש לשמו. So he should have a house among them which is sanctified for his name. ושם נדבר עם משה וצווה את בני ישראל, and that's where he will meet with משה and command בני ישראל, and indeed, that's how we'll read about that in this podcast, that's the function of the holiest place, the Kodesh Kodeshim, be the place of meeting between Hashem and משה to continue giving מצוות. והנה עיקר החפץ במשכן הוא מקום מנוחת השכינה, שהוא אהרון. He says the main purpose of the משכן is to create a place for the שכינה to rest, and that is the אהרון, the first thing we're going to hear about built. כמו שאמרנו, עתיד לך שם ודיברתי איתך מעל הכפורת. As we'll read, <coughs> that I will meet with you there, and I will speak to you from above the כפורת, the cover over the משכן, over the אהרון. על כן הקדים אהרון והכפורת בכאן, כי הוא מוקדם במעלה. Therefore, the Aron and Kapoor are the first things that are described because they are the most significant and most elevated things. What are the next things we'll hear about, which will be in the next podcast? The table and the lampstand, that are also vessels. And the table and the lampstand indicate this idea of a dwelling place that that's the reason they're made but when Moshe commanded B'nai Yisrael what to build he built a, he'd start in the opposite order he started with the tent and the cover that's the order that B'nai built it in because that should actually come first in action and when we get to Parshat Vayakel we'll discuss the famous Gemara about Pitzal El's name. V'son ha-mishkanhu. The secret of the Mishkan is, Shiyah kavona she-shachan al sinai shochen alav benistar. That the glory of God that rested on Har-Sinai should be now resting here in a private, intimate way. V'komoshen ha-mashan v'yishkon kvod Adonai al sinai it says in, at the end of Mishpatim that Hashem's presence rested, and Hashem's glory rested on our Sinai. In Moshe's retelling, in Sefer Tvarim, retelling of these events, he quotes the people as saying, Hashem has shown us His glory and His greatness in His presence on our Sinai. That's the same thing it says about the Mishkan. Mishkan. When we get to the very end of Shemot, we'll read that Hashem's glory fills the Mishkan. It says it twice, that phrase. Relating to his kavod and his greatness that Bnei Yisrael saw at Har Sinai. So the Mishkan always had this kavod that they saw at Har Sinai. And when Moshe came into the Mishkan, Hashem spoke to him the same way he spoke at our Sinai. What does it say regarding the retelling again about Matan Torah that Moshe tells the next generation in Tvarim? Hashem spoke to you from the heavens. He showed you his flame on the earth. 
So in the same way as it, as that description of Harsinai is what it says about the Mishkan, at the end of Parshat at the end of Parshat Naso, Moshe heard this voice speaking to him So Moshe hears the voice above the Kruvim, just as we heard the voice of Hashem at Harsinai, and there is of course the fire. At that passage in Naso, it says he spoke to him. The mystical tradition was that the voice came from heaven to Moshe from right above the kaporet. Every time that Hashem spoke to Moshe, it was mina shamayim. But he hears it from between the two kruvim. As again, Moshe retells the new generation in Dvarim, you heard his words from the fire. That's why the table and the menorah, that's why the aron and the kaport were all gold. I will speak to you, I will meet with you there, I will speak to you, and it will become sanctified. It will be a place set aside for speaking, and it will be sanctified with God's presence. The gold that's mentioned is representative of the fire. You know, if you have something that's pure gold, and you hold a flame to it, it looks like lightning all over the place. So if somebody looks very carefully at the description of Matan Torah and our comments, the Marban says, our comments about it, he'll understand the secret of the Mishkan and the Beit HaMikdash. And he'll understand it if he thinks about what Shlomo said in his wisdom, in his tefillah, when dedicating the Beit HaMikdash. Malachim Aleph, Perak Chet, a very long Perak, beautiful tefillah, the dedication of the Beit HaMikdash. Adonai Elohei Yisrael. That's how he addresses God. They saw Elohei Yisrael. That Hashem is the one who is called Yoshev HaKruvim, the one who sits above the Kruvim. The Kruvim, of course, are on top of the Aron. quote from Yechezkel about a mystical vision, but of seeing Hashem, and he calls him Elohei Yisrael, riding on that chariot. We have a similar description. That Beit HaMikdash is always L'Shem Hashem. L'Shimcha. It's always L'Shem Hashem. And in, in Re'eh, we always see the place where Hashem will make His name rest. That you will hear in heavens. The people will pray in this direction, and you will hear in the heavens. This is the version. Now here the Ramban presents this notion that the 
Mishkan is the place where Hashem's name rests among us, and there's always a reference to both Elohei Israel, because this is the meeting place where God, who has become the God of Israel, rests, and Hashem, because He meets us b'midat harachamim. Further on, the Ramban explains that all of the symbolism in the Mishkan relates itself back to Matan Torah. So, for instance, the smoke of the Toret is the smoke of Harsinai. The fire that's on the Mizbeach is the fire of Harsinai. The gold is like the blazing fire of Harsinai. All of the elements of the Mishkan are essentially a way of creating a Harsinai on the move to be able to continue communicating with B'nai Israel through Moshe um, in, in, uh, as they continue to march towards Eretz Israel. And now, with that pre- preparation, we will now look at the Psukim. So speak to Bnei Israel, and they should take to me a Teruma. What is a Teruma? So there are two different roots playing here. One is Tav Resh Mem, which is to donate, and the other is Resh Vav Mem, or Resh Mem Mem, which is to lift up. And essentially both are playing out here, which is they're going to bring something that they're going to lift up as a donation. From every man whose heart volunteers him, you should take my truma, which means this truma is a voluntary gift. What is the purpose of it? We'll see. But first, what are the materials? This is the truma you should take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. These are different fabrics. Tchelet is wool that's dyed blue, a certain kind of blue. Argaman, wool that's dyed royal purple. Tolat Shani is wool that's dyed some sort of a red. Sheish and Izim. Sheish seems to be linen, and Izim is goat hairs. Vorot Elim Mordamim, Vorot Tchashim, Vatsay Shitim. Vorot Elim Mordamim means the skin of reddish animals, meaning a ruddy skin. Tchashim is some sort of animal, we don't really know what it is, that existed in the Midbar, and Atseshitim, Akeshu wood. Shemen Lamaor. What else do we have to take? Oil for the purpose of the light. Besamim Shemen Amishcha. We have to take spices for the anointment oil. Veliktorat Asamim. Also for the, for the incense. Avne Shoam. Ve Avne Biluim Laifod Velachoshan. Avne Shoam are evidently onyx stones. Avnei are setting stones, stones for putting in settings, for the ephod and the choshen, which we'll hear about in next week's parashat. The ephod is an apron, and the choshen is a breastplate. And now, with all, these are all the things that should be donated. Given all of that, the asuli mikdash, they will make for me a mikdash, the shachanti betocham, and I will rest among them. So you see that the word mikdash and mishkan shachanti are used somewhat interchangeably. They make the Mikdash, I will rest among them. And as the Midrash famously uh, sees carefully in this Pasuk, I will rest not in it, but among them. I will rest among Bnei Yisrael with the Mikdash there. So how are you going to make it? He says exactly what I'm going to show you, which means Hashem is going to show Moshe and Harsinai the model of the Mishkan, the Tavnit, the structure, the plans for the Mishkan, as it were, and the plans for all of its appurtenances, and that's what you should do. 
Okay, that's the introductory line. Now we hear about the first component of the Mishkan, which is going to be in the holiest place of the Mishkan. We spoke about that at length in the Ramban. They should make an Aron, a box, out of acacia wood. Notice here, in the Mishkan, everything is given with very specific and detailed length, width, breadth, etc. So it's two and a half amot, which we're going to take the position that an amah here is also six tfachim as usual, which means this is going to be 15 tfachim, uh, call it roughly uh, 45 inches or so uh, tall, which is one and a half, which we'll call nine tfachim, or about 27 inches or so wide, and its height will be the same as its width. You should plate it with pure gold. On the outside, on the inside, and on the outside, which means there's going to be a gold inlay and a gold cover on the outside, and the middle of it is wood. And you're going to make a border, which is evidently like a crown, that's the way Rashi reads it, which is gold that's going to go around it. Now you're going to solder into it four gold rings. Now the assumption is two on each side. You're going to put them on the four sides. You're going to have two on each side. <clears throat> so essentially by having um, two on each side, but one near the, each near the corner, so essentially all four corners or all four sides are being, being included in this. Then you're going to make dowels or staves out of acacia wood. So the whole thing is acacia wood and gold. And you take the staves and plate them in gold also. Then you're going to put the staves in the rings on the sides of the aron. So that you can carry the aron with them. So in other words, you have this box, and on the side of the box, there's two rings on each side, staves going through them, so people can carry the aron without having to lift it up from the bottom. The staves should be in the rings, they should never go away from there, never be taken away. And you're going to put in the aron the testimony that I'll give you. Which means Moshe is going to get some sort of a testimony from God, and it'll go in that Aron, which means it's not going to be very big, it will fit in that Aron. And that's the Aron is going to be the receptacle for that Edut, that testimony. We don't yet know what it is, we'll find out much later. Now notice the Aron has sides, but it has no top. So you make a kaporet, a kaporet is a cover of pure gold. Two and a half by one and a half, again, perfectly the dimensions of the Aron, as we saw. You're going to make two Kiruvim. We'll talk in a moment about what the Kiruvim are. Miksha means from one solid piece. You'll make them on both sides of the Kaporet. So in other words, there'll be a two kruvim that are coming out of the gold that are all part of one huge hunk of gold and chiseled out from the kaporet itself.
You make it from the kaporet. You may from the kaporet. You will make fashion the kuvim on its two sides, which means again that the kaporet gold is actually a much bigger and taller piece of gold, and you're going to carve out of it the kuvim, so it'll all be one original piece of gold. The kuvim will have wings that the, will lift their wings up high. That they will cover with their wings over the cover. And the kuvim will face each other. One to his brother, they'll face each other. And they'll be facing towards the kaporet. So it looks like they're going to be facing each other and looking down. And you take the kaporet, put it on top of the aron. And then the aron, you're going to put the edut. Now, that can't be in order, because you first have to put the edut in and then put the cover on. But the point is that you're going to put the kaporet over it. And what will have already been put inside? The edut that I'm going to give you. And now, what's the purpose of this entire structure? I will meet with you right there. I will speak to you from above the kaporet, between the kruvim, that are on top of the aron haidut, the aron haidut meaning the aron that holds the edut, which I haven't given you yet, everything that I command you for B'nai Yisrael. And that's going to be the center of this entire structure. The Aron, the Kapolet, the Kruvim, and I'm going to speak to you from between the Kruvim. What are the Kruvim? Well, they're clearly gold statues that are made to be here, which does raise an interesting question we'll pick up in a later podcast about the function of gold and statuary in the Mishkan. However, what does a Kruv look like? So there is the position that they look like um, babes, babe, baby face, faces of ch- little children, uh, the Quran and Babatra and uh, the sixth parak. Uh, however, Rav Amin Bazak, in a, uh, in, in a uh, well-presented article a number of years ago, argued based on the Psukim in Sefer Yechezkel that really the Kruvim look like oxen. And uh, at least the face and the upper body should look like oxen, based on the fact that in the description of the Merkava, the heavenly chariot, in Parak Aleph, we're told that there is a shore, Adam, Aryeh, and uh, Nasher, and in the other one, it's a kruv, Adam, uh, Nasher, and Aryeh. So kruv takes the place of shore, and that would mean that these images really should be looking like oxen, which leads us into some very, very interesting discussions that we'll get into when we get to Chet Ha'egel. In the meantime, we'll pause here and wish everybody a wonderful day.